Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. How are you? Good. Last time we had a very enlightening discussion about the benefits that are often not talked about with diverting people from prison. And uh, this time I'd like to go back, back in episode four, this is epi- we're currently on episode 14, so that's 10 episodes ago. We discussed racial disparity and how that is so evident in the criminal justice system and how we can potentially do something about it. And uh, again, this five-state report that you helped write uh, with Mark Maurer and a couple others, it keeps coming up. And you mentioned, I think, in that report that, you know, ways to, to remedy uh, racial disparity uh, and yet, no one seems to be doing anything about it. And I'd like to talk to you about, first of all, how does that make you feel as one of the authors that no one is following your advice? But also, why do you think that is, and what can yeah. what can we do about it? Well, it's uh, it's quite a topic, and I think pretty interesting. You know, the the five state report uh, and the co author, the third co author, Steve DeBoer, who. Okay is responsible for uh, the research and a good part of the writing and an exceptional um, researcher on this <clears throat> issue and other issues, all the data that's in there came from Steve. And what we found was that uh, because these five states each uh, attacked different parts of the system to reduce their prison populations, some uh, legislative, some executive approaches, et cetera, uh, as they implemented the reforms, they did have a positive impact on racial disparity, but when interviewed as to how intentional that was and what did they do about that specifically, the answer came back in all five states, including Michigan, where I was part of the operations that uh, we examined in, in the book. The answer was the same, but we didn't really go after it. It just kind of happened. It just fell and, out as part of the, the results of implementing the other things. Well, and it's it's sort of like you know if if the the wheels move forward with racial disparity churning uh, a very uh, inequitable uh, approach to persons of color in the system, then when you undo any one of those things, then that starts to reverse. And so, hmm. uh, reform the First Step Act, for example, which uh, is one of the very few policies that uh, Trump and company have pursued. Uh, Jared Kushner, to his credit, his father, as we know, had, had been imprisoned by the hands of prosecutor Chris Christie, among other things, and which explains why uh, Kushner kicked him out of the transition role as soon as he could. Uh, but he's doing this from a, a heartfelt uh, position, one would assume. His family's been touched by incarceration, and that's, uh, that's very good. Right. And the impact, as we're discovering, uh, was very, very uh, uh, heavily uh, on African Americans, and now they're celebrating that and, and pursuing that uh, politically, you know, for their gain, which is what uh, politicians do. But the question, you know, would be, well, was that intentional? Well, I'd have to dig into the history and the congressional record to look at intent. Um, but that doesn't mean that going after that issue was intentional. I'll give you a, a, an example. So. I'm doing some uh, research and some dialogue with the state of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, the governor there, uh, Ramondo, is a very uh, forward-thinking uh, uh, woman uh, who has tackled justice reinvestment reform and focused on 
uh, probation system improvements. And in the report that uh, Pew issued for Rhode Island about Rhode Island, the very opening page shows a picture of the impact of the justice uh, system relative to prison population on whites and uh, blacks. But in this report, it says that, and then it never mentions it again. They go on for 12, 14 pages. They changed legislation. There were six bills never mentioned again. Hmm. And similar to these five states we looked at where, of course, when somebody is laying out the problem, they're going to talk about the racial disparity. Um, And then they push it to the side. And so in my communications, um, I asked, so what happened to that? I mean, why wasn't it attended to when it's so stark? And Rhode Island uh, has some very, very uh, conservative approaches to justice. And, for example, they're the second uh, highest jurisdiction in the country or the world when it comes to the percentage of people who go through court and put on some type of probation supervision. Okay. So the, one would say, well, it's better to have that disparity on probation supervision other than prison. But at the Still, other right. hand, a very high percentage of people on probation are failing on probation and having their probation revoked or resentenced, and now they're going to prison. And so that's one of the drivers of the prison population. And so there's a just a one-step indirect point. So the response was, uh, you know, uh, people were a bit offended by that huh. and felt um, that uh, someone was casting blame. And we talked at length, a couple different folks there, uh, about the fact that that's Uh, not an uncommon uh, position, particularly when someone assumes that the cause of the racial disparity in the prisons stems from police, which is what most people would think right away, the police have been in detail. And if not uh, the police, then those nasty prosecutors, Mm -hmm. you know, and if not the prosecutors and those conservative judges, right? And so those are generally the the three targets. but what we found in uh, the sentencing project, uh, Mark Maurer, uh, one of the foremost authors, if not the foremost author on racial disparity in the United States, uh, worked uh, collaboratively with a group. I was one of the co-authors of a report about how to reduce racial disparity in the justice system, a point-by-point uh, guidelines, if you will, very, uh, very operationally uh, focused. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we were doing that work, we looked at racial disparity in a couple of jurisdictions to test out our theories. We created a racial disparity index so that we could see at every decision point how disparate was it according to race. Yep. And what we discovered was that in the jurisdictions we looked at, no reason to think that this is different anywhere, is that each part of the system was a little racially disparate. And the cumulative effect on that decision making from arrest uh, to point of prosecution, to plea bargaining, to sentencing, to supervision, to uh, release decisions, to post-release supervision, to termination, to revocation, all those decisions right. were a little bit racially disparate. And so at the end of the day, what's where, where do they end up? They end up with the prison system that is terribly uh, racially disparate. And so the point in Rhode Island and the point anywhere would be so let's examine that data and let's put you know the truth out there. Let the data uh, take us where it, it will take us, and so that everyone realizes, oh, ah, well, I'm a little bit a part of the problem, just like everybody, and it's not on me, and yeah. I'm not responsible, and I'm not going to be 
accused of being racist. But I can do better. I can do better, and I am willing to do better if I'm willing to do better with other partners of the justice system who each are willing to do better. And what this guide does is it uh, lays out very clearly at every major point of the system how to examine uh, and assess what you're doing by way of policy, resource allocation, decision making. Um, and based on that assessment, what can you do to reduce that disparity to the extent that it exists? Mm -hmm. By way of policy, resource allocation, very specific operational steps. And so not the typical kind of thing that we have uh, talked about and I've railed uh, against a bit, which is it's all about the problem and everybody's trying to inform everybody about the problem. At the end of the day, we have rock stars and very famous people all focusing on, uh, you know, understanding the problem. And then when the resources come, so let's fix it. Nobody can find any money to do anything about it. And they're just doing more damn research right. to show. It's all about that, raising awareness. Uh, that's right. All about awareness. So, um, so in Rhode Island and others is, you know, is it possible? Was it possible in these five states to at that time or now in the future, uh, Rhode Island would be, would be a consideration here. All right. So we've accomplished a good deal of reform. Uh, we have reports here that show uh, an unintended but not unexpected impact on racial disparity. Why don't we target that? Mm -hmm. Why don't we start to do something specific? Why don't we look at one of the major urban centers in our state and we will find that that major urban center, which is going to be the source of the persons that are imprisoned and the place to which they return, that it's it's this is all urban phenomena everywhere in the country. Right. Attack at one urban center, get a work group together of those uh, courtroom, uh, you know, uh, justice system actors and begin uh, begin to attack it. And the so your question, you know, really is so if we know this, why isn't it happening? You know, and right. when you when you think about that question, I mean, what do you think is a as a you know an observer a non-justice professional observer i mean why do you think that would be well i mean i think it's a little bit like all big problems like uh like you know climate change and stuff like that where all of us is a little bit guilty and it's so easy to to like like you like you found that everywhere in the system is a little bit slanted against uh against people of color and it's so easy to point to everyone else and say, well, geez, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'm not maybe I'm a little bit of the problem, but look at everyone else. They're they're a bigger percentage of the problem. And I think it's really easy for us humans to to not do our part, you know, to to convince everyone to to recycle or to do something uh, to that. If on mass we all did, it would be great. It's so hard because it feels like, what what can I change? That's such a little bit of a change. Is that really going to affect anything? But in order for actual change to happen, everyone has to do their part. Which... Well, and, 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 and in fact, I think that's I think that's true to a certain extent. I think it would be more true if persons understood that that's the way that that disparity is distributed. But they don't know that. They all assume that it's that it's yeah, it, they may, it, they may yeah. that it's almost every that it's everyone else and they don't see any of their own uh, effects or I think it's the opposite. I think they think it's them. I think the police uh, may or the courts may or prosecution may think, well, this is going to put a spotlight on approaches that we have that are racially disparate, and I don't want that spotlight. But, so better but, to keep up the status quo rather than to admit that you're doing reform because you have a problem? Uh, yeah. Okay. And who wants to put the spotlight on, on 
who wants the spotlight on me? Right. Who wants to stand up and say and say uh, I'm part of the problem? We're, right. I'm going to try and fix something. It's better to just and, keep your head down and. Right, and we'll we'll, we'll come back to that because that 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 point. I want to join that point with another point. And so, in, in my experience, uh, working in some leadership and some uh, positions of authority in the justice system over the years, I've had many conversations, uh, particularly with African American leaders uh, in Wayne County, a, a Black County commissioner in uh, Michigan, uh, African American uh, woman who was the governor's criminal justice policy advisor, uh, and then uh, I think a third uh, person comes to mind in, in Louisiana, and. Their response was not more than just surprising me. It was a bit shocking. And what they said was, we don't want to put a spotlight on crime committed by African-Americans. Oh. We, we don't want to highlight. Because that looks racist. Or, or and I, I'm not quite, I was never quite clear about it. I, I'm not sure they were either. But the whole thing was, well, no, no, we're, we really don't want to get into that. That doesn't look good for us. Right. Um, and you know the response would be, but but we're trying to fix it. Yeah, but you don't understand. We don't want uh, attention, you know, put on these racial issues because when we start to look at the data, we see that there uh, is, and the data shows us that there is a great deal of crime committed by persons of color. Mm -hmm. And those of us who are informed know that that's more about economics than it certainly is about race. Of course, although you can't untangle the issue of your economic status with race, these things are, are tied up, and so they're tangled up. And so in in the case of a county commissioner where I went to him, and he was a criminal justice aficionado, he actually in his uh, his, his uh, non-political life ran a, a criminal justice program. I mean, he knew all about this stuff, and and he said, no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it. And in this case, we had technical assistance available from the sentencing project to uh, pick a couple of jurisdictions or, you know, we, we thought there would be some competition. And we put out a, a call for folks that were interested in getting some TA to be able to tackle this. TA being? Technical assistance. Okay. We got no takers. Not one jurisdiction in the United States of America. Not, not, not a jurisdiction where the county commission in Wayne County, Detroit, uh, run by an African-American county commissioner who ran a criminal justice program, no interest from him. Because it's just a political third rail to talk about uh, I guess. crimes of people of color. Huh. Well, and, and we should talk to Mark and others, African-Americans, uh, about this in some future uh, podcasts. But, but imagine that, you know, you, you, what we're up against in, in this issue, just like a lot of issues, um, it, we have this enormous, enormous, deep understanding of, of the shortcomings of imprisonment and the challenges of dealing with people when they're locked up and the budget uh, shortfalls so that we don't have prisons that have good programming. They don't prepare people for release. We've known this for decades, and, right. and yet we, we still don't seem to be doing much about it. I know, uh, curiously, and I'll, I'll dig into this a little bit for a future podcast, you might uh, relate something in our notes, that... The Arnold uh, Foundation, currently the nation's biggest philanthropic uh, giver for justice reform issues and remarkable stuff and very, very proud to be part of some of their grant uh, giving. Um, they're providing a multi-million dollar grant to the Urban Institute to examine some prisons in some states and I think to just kind of catalog uh, what the problems are. And I want to dig into this more before I jump to a conclusion, which I'm about to, I suppose, but it's like, do we really need to study that more? 
you know, uh, we already know there's a lack of programming, there's a lack of training, we don't pay correctional officers enough to get the best uh, possible people for the jobs, we don't have persons that are committed to use that incarceration experience as a way for the reduction of criminality as opposed to simply punishment and locking people away. These are all catalog, these are all research. We've known this for 20 years and yet we're going to spend another multi-million dollar grant to do that. Is it another study that's a set of recommendations which we already have, which really get down to, well, we really need the prison systems to do things differently. We need legislators to fund it differently. And it's like, uh, yeah, uh, we already know that. If you want to fund something, why don't you fund a couple of experiments where we can actually do that and then measure the impact. And show that it works. Right. And replicate the South Carolina study that we talked about in the last episode to show that the benefits to the general population, if for no other uh, perspective, financial, is enormous. And let's do it and let's see what actually happens and let's focus on action. And so, you know, and, and, and I want to I want to bring in uh, uh, the new Jim Crow and Michelle Alexander's points about this. But here's the dilemma. How do we get people in the world where we have significant resources that are coming all the time, federal philanthropic resources to actually stop just focusing on public awareness and the definition of the problem right. and get on the ground and get the hard work done of changing the way that these decisions are being made? How do we get that done? That's what I'd like to engage a whole series of other people coming into this podcast and ask them that question. That's that's where I want to get to, and you know, yeah. the, before I turn seventy, <laughs> and and I'm unable to put two thoughts together. Right? I mean, uh, no despairing uh, people who are seventy or are sharp. I strongly suspect I may not be one of those. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy to it's so much easier to observe, and it's so much harder to actually get in there, get your hands dirty, and actually make a change. So, I had a quick aside while we were talking about Rhode Island. As a, in any American schoolboy, I was taught that Rhode Island is the smallest state. And I was wondering if, um, if the size of your state makes things easier or harder when doing reform. Uh, I imagine they have fewer prisons than California, for example. Uh, and, you know, and I wonder, and, but, I won, but I wonder if maybe they're going to be more urban because it's so much smaller and they have a major city. How, how does the size of the state affect how easy that's, it is to move the dial on these things? That's an interesting uh, question. And, and I, I think a little, probably not too terribly surprising, but the answer is it all depends. All uh-huh. right. So Delaware, another small state, uh, and similar to Rhode Island, uh, in, in terms of its size and its geographic uh, size and, you know, just three counties there. Right. Uh, and then Connecticut uh, also in that part of the country, hour and a half from, from Rhode Island. Um, and interestingly, all three of those states are what we call unified states. That uh, means that their jail and their, their jail system and their prison system is one system. Hmm. So they have a detention system, an incarceration system. And people who are... Uh, arrested and going through court uh, with bail posted who are unable to post bail uh, and go to debtors uh, prison while they're uh, waiting. Um, they are locked up under the, 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 the supervision of the same agency that takes people post sentencing for short prison for short terms, which would still be jails in most places. And then also people longer terms, which would be prisons in most places. So all three of those states are unified states. And so um, this question um, is applicable uh, in, in some different ways, right? So, and then by point of reference, Rhode, um, let's see, Vermont is yet another unified state, still in that part of the country, and then pretty far away, Alaska is another unified state. And I think that that th- those are the five states that are unified. I don't think that there's there's any others. And so, we're actually talking actively with 
uh, three of those states about joining forces and looking at the challenges, the unique challenges that they face. So hmm. um, in this issue of a small state and whether it's relatively easier or harder is an issue that should be and will be on the table when, uh, and if I say when, because I'm pretty certain it's going to happen, we get at least three of those states together and get them to all uh, answer, reflect, and interact on two basic questions. What are you doing that's working and what are you doing that's not? And then by sharing that information uh, with each other, mm-hmm. one state will say, oh, well, we're, we're, we're actually doing well in the area. You're doing difficult and let's share information. Nice. We're not doing well, you know, and, and that's a good way to, to improve uh, uh, outputs. So here's back to your, your, your question. So in, in, in Delaware, uh, where I've worked for years, um, you have a circumstance where because it's a small state, everybody knows everybody. And everybody really gets along. And they've worked on different issues with each other for their entire careers. Mm-hmm. And they exchange personnel. Somebody, uh, you know, has a, a, you know, a Cracker Jack employee and an opening opens up in a, in a brother or sister agency. And, you know, leader A talks to leader B and says, hey, you know, you ought to take a look at Joe. And then Joe goes over there and then they're cross pollinating. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, they may even in, in one case, uh, one of the leaders in the prison system there, Jim Elder, who is a remarkable, remarkable leader of, of evidence-based practices and uh, coming out of uh, the reform movement and now in a leadership post in, in, in correction said at one point, he said, yeah, well, you know, that guy, uh, I believe uh, somebody who we really needed to, to focus on that they, they weren't doing the job they needed to do. Well, he lives across the street from me and uh, ah, our kids nice. go to the same school. And, you know, I really, you know, and, and, and so there's this thing that on the one hand, they work with each other, they know each other, but on the other hand, because of that, they really don't want conflict. They get a little tribal and they don't, right. Very tribal. And so let's say that, that in a in a state where you've got, uh, as you do in, in Delaware, you've got a remarkable history of attempted reforms to improve reentry and some remarkable improvements on policy and some very, very good uh, work. But at the end of the day, they're not satisfied, nor they should be, with uh, the impact on recidivism. And they did a, a, a university uh, there, Delaware, remarkable uh, uh, academic institution that's got their hands in policy and practice, which of course I love. Um, they did a study and they said, you know, you've got 30 or 40 things that, that are, are not working very well. Mm-hmm. It was quite a list. <laughs> um, and you need to know these things because the impact on recidivism is very minor and it only lasts for a couple of months. And then after that, the people you work with don't look any different than the people you don't work with. So after a decade right. or whatever it was of activity, oh my. And so, uh, and, and I mentioned Arnold. Arnold now is funding some work that we're doing. I've been doing some work on the ground there to try to uh, change that in, in some ways we've talked about again and again on, di- on different podcasts, so I won't go into that. But this issue of uh, accountability is clear that there are people in that system that simply aren't doing what they were supposed to do, what they agreed to do. Hmm. They're not following the plan of action. They're not doing what was agreed to. They're not doing what the funding intends for them to do. And who then is going to say, uh, hey, uh, Joe, uh, you know, uh, good to see you. Uh, (laughs) But listen, man, uh, these numbers are hard to, to figure out. 
what what you know I'd like to work with you to try to improve things now so they the get a, they is, get a little too collegial and you know you're not going to say uh, hey uh, great great game great baseball game our kids played the other day uh, by the way uh, you need to change the way you're doing things it's it's well and 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 here's the thing is that that in the in the professional world this is not got to be a big negative accusatory right. conversation it's it's an examination of data and an analysis of how impact we, how we can do better which which is neutral and in in which isn't accusatory when it's focused on what we're going to do to be able to achieve it and so the reluctance of, of folks to hold each other accountable is is uh, is is curious to me and, and and i don't know if it's if it's because their culture is one where nothing of any negative uh, consequence gets talked about nothing hmm. uh because it's got to be copacetic it's got to be you know kumbaya holding hands and nothing less than that is acceptable culturally i can never fully understand that because i'm never a, a part of that i'm not a member of that tribe but i will tell you that it's apparent interesting and and and, and i'm always interested in exploring you know uh, avenues of improved operation uh, so in connecticut uh, where, as you know, from the five-state report, we had some remarkable progress. Governor Malloy there, former governor, did some uh, great reforms. Um, but at the end of the day, people in the community are not satisfied that there's a lot of difference on the ground. Right. People are still getting out of prison without any parole supervision, very high percentages. People are being released from prison into homelessness. There's not enough resources, et cetera. And they say, well, it's great that you know the governor did all these things, and maybe that's helping some people. But in my neighborhood, in my community, we're not seeing it on the ground. And so they want to attack another series of reforms, and they're going to focus on improved reentry. And because they know everybody, and everybody knows everybody, they're talking to people. And and people are saying, well, you know, I don't, I think we're good for now. There's no crisis <laughs> Prison population has gone down. You know, crime isn't an issue. I mean, what's, you know, why are you wanting to push now? And when those conversations are had, there's a lot of, you know, uh, post-meeting discussion of, you know, why did this guy act that way and what did he mean by that? And, uh. you know, and it's very relational and they know that they're going to have to continue to work with each other in 10 different ways that it's got to stay positive. And it's a very difficult dance now, in, in Connecticut, the folks uh, on the community side where I'm uh, going to be working through the university there, they are very determined to move forward, and they're going to tackle this. And so I'm, I'm thrilled uh, to, to be part of that, and so we can talk about that, that later. Yeah. Uh, in Rhode Island, I'm just having conversations there. I'm not doing any work there, but I'd like to you know, see uh, if, for example, as they might, you know, might they be willing to attack this issue of racial disparity? The governor certainly is all about uh, racial disparity. She's prominently talked about it, and her number one issue as a as a, a former venture capitalist, uh, another business person in the governor's office, which I think uh, can provide some remarkable insights in new directions, and, and particularly a woman a governor. I think women, as politicians in general, in my experience, do better mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to uh, taking some risk. But it's all about the degree of uh, risk that they want to take. And, and this governor is uh, jobs. Jobs is issue number one. Uh, you can go online and maybe your, our notes will reflect this nice little video that she recently did that's on her website all right, that's all be. about employment and employability and so the nexus between racial disparity uh prison crowding and jobs is pretty clear you know that's something that that, that she could tackle if, if she wanted to to do yet another uh, another round of reforms um but the question is well uh do you want to take that step do you want to 
make that call to action on an issue which generates a great deal of divisiveness when you're examining the problem and the assumptions that you have about the problem. And my recommendation uh, there and everywhere is, well, let's start behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. Let's just have informal conversations, no decision making. Let's not, you know, bring the Open Meetings Act, which most states have, uh, into play. Let's just talk about these issues and see what the appetite is. And let's look at some data. And based on that data, let's see what the approach would be before we do a call to action. You know, and it just it just reminds me so much of the of, you know, what what folks that are all about, you know, system reform, true system reform, you know, what they say and how they say it when they look at a call to action. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's worth uh, it's worth looking at. I've got a uh, couple of uh, uh, at least one quote I'd, I'd, I'd like to give you. But does that make sense? What I'm saying about, you know, uh, the way to go about this? Yes. Yes. Uh, first of all, that was fascinating to learn about the how the small states have uh, have their pros and cons. And also, brilliant segue back into uh, our topic of having a, a call to action and something to actually do about about the racial disparity. Well, and, and, on, and, and on that that same point about the small states, the fact is that if in that room behind closed doors, folks do come to a common understanding of what the causes are, and a response which can be uniform and less controversial, they are much more able to move much quicker exactly because if if all of the act if there's only you know eight primary people that need to be on the same page in a state then that's going to be way easier than getting 50 people to all agree on the course of action i would imagine right and and whether you're in a small state or a a large state you generally have the same type of departments and so the number of people won't be that different because every state has got Uh, five or six departments so there's five or six people but here's the point is that they're able to move faster because they already trust each other, right? Because and they, they already have that, know each other. They have that social right. bond. That, that's right. That if that's right. if if Johnny over there thinks that what Dennis is saying is right, then you know I trust Johnny, so uh, I'm going to be more likely to, right. to to believe it too. Right. Nice. Right. So you know the the um, you know in the the new Jim Crow uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, book. Um, I haven't read which, that book, but I've read several of her of her op eds and, and articles and things, and right. she seems really on the ball with all this stuff. Oh, she's incredible book, and in fact, the uh, introduction, the forward by Cornell West, is is fascinating uh, to read. And Cornell West is a, a figure you often see on uh, on uh, television newscasts. He's an outspoken activist, African American, and astounding in his breadth and depth, and and also his passion. And, and Alexander is is no shrinking violet when it comes to uh, uh, pushing for reform. The documentary, we should uh, note, 13, uh, features uh, a, a great interview of Michelle uh, Alexander on this stuff. And so folks that are not uh, particularly prone to read a great deal uh, can can see that uh, on Netflix, uh, 13. It's it's free. Just take a look at it. I will, but, I will be, I'll be linking to that in our show notes at seekjustice.fm slash 014 for anyone who wants to go there, pause the podcast and go right there and watch that. Yeah, so the... Uh, Alexander published, in addition to her book, a study guide uh, and a call to action, which is interesting in that it, it, it on, on this point of, of controversy and feasibility, et cetera, which I'll, I'll give you a quote from there, um, when it gets into the details on, on what to do, it's very generalist stuff, you know, like reform or transform. Uh, you know, are we really looking for a uh, a new moral consensus. These are big uh, general issues, um, and 
so I, I have a question. Is that a is that a common thing? Because that sounds just like what what you did, where you you and Mark Mauer and and um, the other guy whose name I've forgotten already, uh, Scott somebody, um, where you where you wrote a you wrote a a paper explaining what the problem was, but then you came out with a step by step. Yeah. Uh, is is that a common thing, or is it just what's what's more common? is that they come up with a lot of focus on the problem, in, in this case with Alexander uh, et al., uh, Maurer as well, uh, do an exceptional examination of the problem and the cause of the problem, which lead to recommendations uh, for action. In the case of uh, Alexander and in this plan of action that she proposes with a lot of generalist stuff, I mean, when it goes into, there's a paragraph, just, it's like, uh, it's three sentences. Mm -hmm. And it says that we need to do consciousness erasing, right? Yeah. Which is all about you know the problem and, and et cetera. Building an underground railroad that provides support to all those directly impacted by the system. Well, okay, that's all. Uh, yeah, that's a little yeah, a little those, too little too general. And then organizing for the abolition of the system of mass incarceration. Well, so well, those so, are those are two pretty racially charged terms, the Underground Railroad and abolition, right? Absolutely. And so do those things in the group that's uh, going to work, do they, uh, do they generate, you know, generate trust? That and, sounds, you know, that sounds more like a, like a, like a dog whistle to her, to her it's, followers. It's, it's very, it, 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 so, so here's an interesting, this is the quote that uh, Alexander provided in the, in the call of action and uh, she uh, leans heavily on Martin Luther King as a junior as we all do when we come to these issues because he was so damn right right uh, about it and the the, the the point of context here is that Martin Luther King jr knew what it felt like to face what seemed to be an impassable barrier and in such situations he understood all too well the tension between what appears politically feasible and what is morally right and necessary as he observed and this is the quote Cowardice asked the question, is it safe? Expediency asked the question, is it politic? And vanity comes along and asks the question, is it popular? Mm -hmm. But conscious asked the question, is it right? And there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but he must do it because conscious tells him it is right. And that's quoted from February 6, 1968, a proper sense of priorities. Wow. This, this is the call to action that we need to focus on. The, the, it is not safe to do this work. No. It is not politic. It's not popular. But it damn hell is right. Mm -hmm. And when you have opportunities in states that have already done some of the hard work of tackling those reforms— if we ask those same questions, not of the issue of racial disparity, but the issues of improved sentencing or improved uh, statutory uh, length of term for imprisonment or improved public defense or, you know, more funding for reentry. If you ask those questions, you will see that, well, holy cow, um, it's um, there's some parts of it that that aren't safe and we can kind of soften this a little bit. Pew is, is uh, you know, a, a good dancer on this, dancing the dance and talking about the stuff in public safety terms and generating support from law enforcement to do the work so that it's it's not only safer ground, it's more politically expedient because you, you take care of that. And you can make it more popular because you're addressing 
the expediency and the safety of it and the politics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in those states that have already done that and they say, hey, holy cow, uh, we have politicians run on this. Uh, uh, Jennifer Granholm ran uh, uh, her uh, first campaign to a, a larger degree than her second uh, gubernatorial campaign with a very uh, uh, dedicated uh, justice improvement focus. And she did uh, take the right uh, stand. It wasn't particularly safe. It, it created some political risk, uh, but it was right. And she knew it was right. And because she was a prosecutor, as we've talked before, she was on safer ground than perhaps a defense attorney that, that might have been running. And she said, you know, it's not enough to be tough on crime. You have to be smart on crime. And this was, uh, you know, uh, decades, uh, 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 more than a decade ago. So that term, uh, I think she was one of the first ones ones to use it. So in those states that have already tried this to say, hey, that worked out pretty well, politically, politically, uh, vanity wise, et cetera. Why don't we go a little deeper into that? Why don't we dig a little deeper, particularly if the leadership is coming from the governor and the governor is in his or her second, generally her last his or her last term. Mm-hmm. And you're not having to play it safe as you often do in your first term because you need to run for re-election, which in most states you start running for re-election two years into your first term. Right. So you got to get stuff done in those first two years and then you can't do much for two years and then you get re-elected, you have two, ter- two years before you become a lame duck. You know, um, although breaking the mold, oh gosh, who would break the mold? Donald Trump, you know, does his first uh, campaign speech like a week yeah. right after he's a sitting president it's breaking the mold on that um but when they're when when they're not uh running for governor again then this issue of safety expediency political uh, correctness etc may be less true however if they're going to run from governor to congress or uh from from governor to president or mm-hmm. governor to congress to president you know where are you going so you know uh in georgia what i was very thrilled with there with governor deal who had already been in Congress, right, and was in his 70s, and this was the tail end of his career, he was bold. Right. He was bold, and because he was not aspiring for a higher office. Exactly. And it was so uh, invigorating. Uh, and there's some foibles there as well that I, I don't want to get into here, but but uh, anyway, you know, this, this is kind of where we stand when we think about a call to action and people we want to talk to about this. I think we should but get I, some people out. So. so I have a question. I mean, you say that it's not it's not politic to talk about these things, but already we've covered the uh, if our goal is to reduce prison population. Let's just declare that as and and out of that is going to fall less racial disparity and things like that. But if that's our goal, already there's we can we can show we can show the liberals that this is going to help less fortunate people, which is you know the primary liberal cause and we can show the conservatives that it's going to generate more money for the economy and save us more money which is you know to pigeonhole both the left and the right that's the primary conservative cause it seems like we have arguments to both of them that fit in with their worldview how is it how is it so hard to to convince people like it, it seems like we have good arguments about that. Maybe the, the, the harder part is, like we've talked about already a little bit in this episode, is with the racial disparity, is going in and, and, and admitting, look, people of color commit more crimes than, than white people, which I don't know that that's the case, but prob- I, I imagine it, it probably is. Uh, be- but, and it's not because of their, the color of their skin. It's because their socioeconomic status and 
much of their socioeconomic status is because of the inherent racism that is that has kept them there. But it seems like it seems like we have decent arguments, political arguments. Why is it so hard to get politicians to? Why is it still such a third rail to touch? Well, this? it's it, 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 it to the point of at what point do these reform ideas, these reform options become? or in that list, in that column of too controversial. And so we see with the Pew Charitable Trust, the Justice Reinvestment Initiative, and linking that with the Bureau of Justice Assistance that funds that as well, is that they've tackled that in over 20 states, and they have found a, a bit of a formula, if you will, to pull folks together to do these reforms. And some would argue that those reforms, they're certainly good, but they're also a bit light. They don't tackle the bigger issues. They don't tackle the controversial issues. So they clearly don't attack the issue of racial disparity. They're more than willing to publicize it. And 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 I think to your point, to say that in, in, in such a way that it does interest uh, liberals, if not a persons of color, who say, oh, uh, that perks up my interest because you're going to attack that. But then when it comes time to actually do something about that specifically, they say, well, no, I mean, it'll just be an indirect cause. I mean, this will help uh, folks in a, in a, in a disparate way. <laughs> It'll help more persons of color just because that's the way it rolls. And the five-state report points that out. So to your question, what does it take to, to, to move to one greater step of reform and to move into a more controversial? It calls uh, for what Martin Luther King Jr. has said here. Mm -hmm. We need to be much more morally driven on an issue that is not going to be as safe. Now, I don't want to minimize the difference in the United States over the past 10 years because of what uh, Pew and the Justice Reentry Initiative do have done. They have explored this. We've got reams of politicians and published material that show that you can do reforms in a bipartisan way, that while they may not be the most controversial reforms, they do have positive impact over time. And while uh, Pew often uh, conflates uh, savings with uh, cost avoidance, and the, the reinvestment that they take is very rarely realized, mm -hmm. uh, which is in itself another uh, example of a lack of accountability and a lack of courage, mm -hmm. if, if I may. Uh, I'm sure that, that, that some will find that offensive, is that do what you did in Louisiana and make it a damn law mm -hmm. that when you save money, analyze it and reinvest it. They didn't do that in Rhode Island. And is Rhode Island going to you know, understand the difference between cost avoiding and savings. They said Rhode Island's on the map to spend $24 million by 2025 if they don't change their probation practices. <laughs> well, how much money is actually going to be saved? Well, they're doing diversion programs. And as we've discussed, maybe one out of every two people they divert from prison, so-called divert from prison, really would have gone to prison. And so the best impact you could have is 50%. So what's the true uh, savings over time. You're going to keep 300 people out of prison. Does that change the budget of the prison system? No. Right. Is there any real cost savings? And if there is, is that reinvested? And it's no, no, and no. And yet the name of the initiative is in reinvestment. And so maybe that makes people gunshot. Maybe they say, well, you know, there's controversy uh, behind the scenes. Connecticut, we mentioned some controversy behind the scenes and other states, North Carolina, for example, where the community was livid that the, uh, the, the double-digit figure of millions of dollars of savings, I think it was some hundred million, I can't remember, your notes can, 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 can post this, but it wasn't savings, it was cost avoidance, and the communities ended up getting some paltry amount of money, you know, statewide, like three or six million dollars, and they said, my God, you saved, you know, X hundred million or whatever, where is it? 
yeah. controversy as a result of that. So post-reform, the controversy may have continued. And so these questions that Martin Luther King Jr. asks come into play afterwards and say, well, part of this didn't help me politically. Part of this wasn't expedient. And so if I'm going to go deeper into this, if I start to talk about racial disparities, somebody going to raise the issue of reparations? Does somebody want to go into that area? Mm-hmm. That's more controversy than I want. You know, uh, you know, if you're a white politician, how does this come across? Who do you partner with? When you partner with African-American or persons of color, what are they looking for? How deep do they want to go? Michelle Alexander says very clearly, you need a coalition yep. to abolish, uh, you know, mass incarceration. Well, that's, uh, that's, you know, that's a good thing to do. And it's work I've done. Certainly right. we formed a collaborative mission to end mass incarceration and every nonprofit and activist group in the state that is about, you know, uh, taking a piece, you know, a chunk out of that mountain is at the table and it's it, we're going about it in a much more uh, ambitious and uniform way. I don't know that any other state is doing that. Uh, but here's another example. If you want to end mass incarceration, saying it isn't going to get us there. Uh-huh. Why not examine what a state like uh, Michigan is doing to actually end mass incarceration? Who's at the table? How does that operate? What is their analysis? What is their plan of action? What pieces are they going after? Who's doing what when? What is the actual activity on the ground that has to be made in order to change the practices on the ground so that people, if it's reentry, people on the ground are saying, you know, it's better now. They recognize that it's better now. If you're on the front end of the system, people engaged say it's better than what it was. That's what's been missing from these reforms is that they don't trickle down in an apparent way uh, to the people. And it may be a lack of dedication of looking at that impact and communicating that impact and following up on the stuff and marketing in such a way that people will get that. Right. And statistics can help. But at the end of the day, you need some stories. When you say that we need King's um, conscious to help, to help us in a moral sense, to, to, to communicate morality, you have to have stories. You have to have, uh, you know, narratives. That's why, you know, the Bible is so full of parables and, you know, Aesop's fables and stuff like that to com- to to communicate morality, you really need stories, and right, it's almost so people can yeah, so people can identify with it, and right, and and, and you can have, you know, case study number one, somebody goes through the system uh, as it is, and what happens to them and their family and their kids, and if we followed as we talked in the last episode, the South Carolina study that uh, David Hughes uh, uh, wrote, um, we could look at that as kind of a checklist, right? of let's study the impact on jobs and employment and this person pay taxes and what did they do and what happened with their kids you know on the on you know uh, example b which is the person that, that went through the the, the new uh, approach to the system and that i think will will get it across to people better but if all these millions of dollars are being spent by arnold and by others you know that's what we need to, to get focused on so we should bring some people on into the podcast that can kind of help us think through that a little bit yeah the there's really good um psychology studies where if you ask people to donate if you know to a charity and you show them one little starving girl they're much more likely to donate than if you say oh yeah and there's another hundred thousand of girls just yeah. like this because right. once once you raise it to to a bigger number people are much less willing to be affected by the story right. Right. so maybe maybe we need like a like a documentary that follows the lives of people through the system and yeah. to to really allow people to connect yep. uh to see yep to follow exactly what's yeah. going on but you know there is there there is some of that and, and this may be the the thing to close on um is that um go ahead and find uh the um documentary of president barack obama visiting and interacting with prisoners 
um, and it was on the uh, news show Vice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and look at that, it is absolutely remarkable. And I think it is an example of somebody responding to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s call to action. Because when you look at what uh, President Obama did there, as a sitting president, and you look at those uh, questions that uh, Martin Luther King is, is quoted in Alexander's book, was it safe? It certainly was not safe. Right. Was it politic? Uh, uh, somewhat, right. not, not, not very broadly. Uh, was it popular? Uh, not so much. But was it right? Hell yes. You know, President Michelle Obama said, hell yes. And why? They both come from this activist background where they are boots on the ground for so much of their life, mm-hmm. understanding that with that high level of leadership comes a tremendous high level of responsibility to do what's right. And we don't have enough of that. And we've got to try to get some of these folks that are, that are, are they're, they're doing some good things about leadership, but they're just not focused on action. They're focused too much on identification of the problem. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account, at seekjusticefm. See you next week.